Welcome back to another episode of Code Red. I'm Ray Carr, and with me always is Fitz. Hey, Fitz. Hi, Ray. Today, we have a very special guest joining us, retired FBI agent and author of the book, The Queen of Cuba, Pete Lapp. Pete, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Hi, Pete. Hey, Fritz. How are you? I'm great. I want to hear all about your career, how you got into the FBI, and I see the book right over your left shoulder there. I want to talk about that, but uh, and you've got some Philly connections like we do. Uh, yep, tell us about the early part. There it is. Born and raised in South Jersey and uh, grew up on a dirt road right across from a peach orchard in Fry's Mill, New Jersey. And uh, I, I understand the road is now paved, finally. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, now, from there, you know, grew up around the Philadelphia area my, my whole life until the FBI. Somehow I snuck through the cracks and got hired, beat the system and got in. And, uh, you know, after, after I got into the FBI, moved to the Washington, D.C. area. And for the most part, I, I mean, uh, the 22 years I was in the FBI, we went home, home for uh, three years back to Westchester. And I don't care what John Bon Jovi says. I say you can't go home. Um, it had just it just changed. You know, we had become Northern Virginia people, and and um, you know came back here, moved up to headquarters, and and uh, you know then spent the rest of my career here in the D.C. area. So this is this is home for us uh, for me now. And by the way, it was Thomas Wolfe before Bon Jovi, but that's just a little literary reference there about the home thing. It's true sometimes, other times it's not. But yeah. So you went to school, I think, in the Philly area, right? Went to Westchester University, and um, then I went and got my master's at St. Joe's. And uh, my goal, my father had graduated from uh, Westchester. He was actually on the track team at St. Joe's with um, with Vince Papali. And oh, yeah. Um, yeah, they were Vince. Vince was uh, I think Vince was a sprinter. And my dad threw through javelin and discus. And uh, I wanted to follow in his footsteps and go to St. Joe's, but I, I wasn't quite smart enough. So um, rejection rejection began early in my life with uh, thanks to St. Joe's. And and, I, and I'll tell you, I you know Westchester was just a phenomenal experience. It's a great town. Um, I met my, my roommate. Um, I had this aspiration to be the next Bon Jovi, which was ridiculous because I laughed. I lacked talent and I lacked, um, you know, dedication and I lacked practicing. I just, I just wanted to be a rock star. Like I didn't want to do the work. I just wanted to be the rock star up on stage. And um, th that was kind of a dream that, that uh, dissipated real quick. And my roommate, he said, he said, uh, I said, what are you going to do? And he said, I want to be a Maryland state trooper. And I said, that sounds kind of cool. And New Jersey you know, growing up in New Jersey, the New Jersey State Police had a phenomenal presence. Uh, you know, the uniforms were just so impressive. Their demeanor, they always seemed, anytime you saw a trooper, even even when you were being pulled over, you felt like they were in control. And they were, they, but it was a positive energy. And I said, I can, I'd like to do that. So it kind of pivoted my life to the direction of law enforcement and away from rock star. Well, um, a lot of young people listen to this show, and I always like to put a story, the stories out there, the origin stories, as they say, of our guest. And uh, and yeah, not all of us had silver spoons in our mouths when we were born, and some of us struggled through school and maybe took a left turn when we should have gone right. So, uh, I, you know, I applied to the Bureau the first time. I didn't pass the test. I did it a second time, and I did. And uh, so uh, sometimes I think I kind of, you know, zigzag my way in there. But I don't think looking back, the Bureau has any regrets. Ray, you and I have talked about that. Sometimes uh, we feel that uh, we're lucky to have one of the best jobs in the world, but yeah. it could have gone in different directions, as we know. Yeah, well, Pete, like, like Jim, I took the Bureau exam the first time and didn't pass it as well, and then took it a second time. But the funny thing is, is I'm a Jersey guy, too. When my dad got back from Vietnam, we moved over to New Jersey. And uh, I went to Goodstown, so we were kind of rivals. Uh, I uh, yeah, yeah. So we would come down there, and one of the things I did my junior year, in the in the spring of my junior year, is I took the state police exam for New Jersey, me and another ballpark, because I always wanted to be a cop. 
And yeah. when I did that, uh, I, I passed that test. And they called me uh, in the fall to uh, actually it was in the summer to appear in the fall down at Seagirt for a panel interview. And I asked them if I could put things on hold until I finished my last year of school. Mm-hmm. And they said, no, you had to start all over again. So that's what I did. And I never, I never went back. I never went back. It's kind of everything happens for a reason. But yeah. small world, how we, we could have probably crossed each other had you gone that route too, you know? Really interesting. So yeah, you know, I I credit my roommate Joe Ashman um, for being the uh, the muse, if you will, for the the path that I went on in law enforcement. And then my father, my freshman year Thanksgiving, my father lost his job. He was working at um, Oyster Creek Nuclear Power Plant in in Forked River. And he picks me up, and I remember exactly where I was. And he said, he just picked me up. He said, I got bad news. I lost my job. Um, you might want to think about the Army and ROTC. And I'm like, what the hell is ROTC? Like, I'm like, the shock was just palatable. And, and I knew that, you know, I was going to have to pay for college on my own and, and decided to uh, enlist in the Army National Guard. We had a, we had a unit down the street. And went to basic training at Fort, uh, the the base formerly known as Fort Benning in Georgia, and um, you know came back and contracted as an ROTC cadet, and then worked towards getting a commission in the National Guard, but but doing the one week in a month, getting paid, getting the GI Bill, you know, getting all the benefits, and it it changed the course of my life. It really was, um, you know, you, you, the silver spoon aspect. I yeah, I get a hundred percent because nothing was given to me. I had to kind of you know, scrap for it every, every step of the way. So, it, it, but it's what made me, me, right. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't be this person if I didn't have to scrap like that, you know, working so hard in undergraduate school, doing all that, you know, army stuff. So let's uh, go back one sec before we get into your book. Let's talk about this rock star thing. You know? <laughs> I'm really interested in this rock star thing. Pete. Hold on, hold on. Here's the, here's the guitar. Here's the guitar. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you to sing a song. Let me add here, just about two weeks ago, we had an actual former rock star as our guest. And my, our friend Rob Leonard is a linguist at Hofstra University. So he was in the band Sha Na Na back in the 60s and early wow. 70s. So now here we have someone who maybe almost got there. Let's hear your story, Pete. I, 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 I never got to that level, to be honest with you. I mean, wow, that's, that's impressive. Um, I had played guitar in high school off and on. I took lessons. The teacher I took was, he, he actually taught, he taught Al Miola. Al Miola is a big jazz guitarist name. He's a, he's a phenomenal, he's one of the better guitar players in the world. And, and my teacher's style was, was jazz and classical. I didn't really like it. I wanted to play rock and roll. I wanted to play Van Halen and Bon Jovi and all that stuff. So um, I got enough lessons to get started. And then I kind of would pick up my guitar and put it down and pick it up and put it down, you know, over, over the years. And then, you know, frankly, when I got, I got separated and divorced at, at the age of 40, I was 12 years in the FBI. Um, We made good money in the bureau, but you know, having two houses in Northern Virginia or two homes, you know, that, that gets real expensive real quick. And um, I needed an outlet, but I also needed a way of kind of a a side gig to be frank. And I went to an open mic and I, I practiced and practiced and practiced. And, and I, and I did, I sang one of dead or alive in front of, you know, people I'd never met before. And and they knew how nervous I was. And the crowd was like singing with me, you know, the Richie Sambora, want it, you know, singing along. And I, I felt that energy and it was like, oh, wow, this is, this is what it feels like. This is, this is cool. And I just kept practicing and practicing and practicing. And finally, you know, Ray, you know, Christian Zajac, right? Um, I do. So Christian, Christian had a band. And um, it was New Year's Eve of 2011, 2012. And I said, can I open for your band? And he had a two-man band. And I, he said, yeah, I'm not going to pay you, but go ahead. Get up on stage and, you know, <laughs> sing. And um, 
I played my 10 songs. I practiced. I you know, poured my heart out, really worked hard on those 10, the only 10 songs I knew. And he introduces me to the manager. And the manager said, hey, you're pretty good. Do you play out? And I said, no, but I'm trying to get to that level. What, what do you pay? Just out of curiosity, what do you pay? And she said, for a solo guy, for two hours on my patio, like two to 300 bucks. And I'm like, I'm going to get back to you. And that this true story, 10 months later, my first professional gig was on her patio in, in um, God, it was McGurk's, McGurk's up in uh, Montgomery County, I think. And it made $250 playing, singing and playing guitar in front of people for, for two hours. And it was like hooked. You know, it was just so much fun to entertain people. Uh, sometimes you were the background. Sometimes you were, you know, people were singing along. It depends on the time of night, the day of the week, the amount of alcohol they've had, you know, the songs you do. Sometimes they're sing along songs and sometimes they want it and sometimes they don't. So it's all about reading the audience and knowing the mood and setting the mood. And it just, it became, it became a, a moonlighting gig for me. And the Bureau knew most of it. I mean, they were, they were, they had approved a little bit of it, but I don't think they knew how much I was playing, but I needed, I needed that outlet going through, you know, the, the life change of the divorce and not having my kids with me all the time. And, you know, trying to, trying to just stay financially alive with, you know, two houses. So that's the truth. Pete, Pete, two questions. Did your audience know they were being serenaded by an FBI agent? And were you carrying your piece under your, uh, behind your guitar? Yes, sometimes and no, because I made it a rule that if I was going to go out and be anywhere near alcohol, I, I was not going to be armed. That was just, you know, more bad in my mind, more bad things would happen with alcohol and my gun than, oh, yeah. without, than without my gun. So I just, I just made it. You know, and my, my, I would, I would leave it. <laughs> I would, I would actually, I'd be that guy who leaves it in the bathroom and, and like, or leaves it behind the, behind the guitar and goes, where did I leave that? So I, the world's safer with me not combining those two. But there were times, a lot of people got to know who I was a, a, as an FBI agent. And, and I had no problem at that point in time in my career, I was, kind of a public figure in part because I did a lot of talks publicly about the case and, and I was doing that outreach for the Bureau. So I was out and about anyway. Um, it wasn't an issue. I find it um, fascinating. You don't run into too many people like you that have the opportunity to live their dream twice. Once as an agent, another as a singer, and really a third time now as an author. Um, it's just, uh, just amazing. What what a life you had, Pete. And uh, I mean, what a what an inspiration to a lot of our listeners. It's like they look at this and they figure, hey, hard work, it doesn't matter. You know, yeah. as long as you work hard, you're going to achieve. And I think that's a great message that you're resonating with everybody that's listening to this. Um, I think ahead. whatever we do, um, we have to have an outlet. You know, I don't care if you were a salesperson for whatever. I mean, if you if your whole identity is based on you know, in our former lives, the badge and the gun, you know, what, what happens when that, those things go away because you've retired, you have to have more of an identity. And, and the music helped me create this identity besides FBI agent Pete Lapp, which, which I enjoyed having not dual identities, but just kind of a different side of me that I got to express and, and people got to know. And, you know, as a, as a cop early on, I picked up on that. I became a sergeant and at roll call, just having conversations with my, uh, with my squad. It applies to the FBI. If, if it's only the badge and the gun is your whole life, you're going to get in trouble mm -hmm. and you're not going to be happy. And when that retirement day comes and in law enforcement, at least in some agencies like the FBI, there's a certain age you reach, you have yeah. to retire. You're yeah. forced out the door. They'll give you one extra year, maybe two in some exigent circumstances, but, but yeah, and it's the, and it's the agents and the cops, that's all they live and breathe. And I, I know academics and sometimes they go to conference and, and they'd be talking, you know, their particular trade or expertise, the whole dinner after a few drinks. And I know, you know, my wife, Natalie would go with them and say, 
kind of off the clock. And I was the same way. And Ray and I would go to a conference, we, whatever we would do in training. Once we get out and we're done, let's talk about the game the night before, yeah. sports, playing an instrument, you know, whatever, going fishing with the kids the next day, something like that. There's right. only so much you can do. And if your whole persona is wrapped around that, and it's only law enforcement, but I think that could be one of the bigger, more prominent professions that it can really cause problems in the long run. It's not I'd healthy. Love to hear about, not healthy. I'd love to hear about your uh, career as an agent and how it led into this story. I mean, where did you start? You came out of Quantico. Did you go right to, to Washington field office, WFO, or did you go somewhere else? Did you spend your whole career there? What did you work? Yeah. So I knew, um, I processed out of Philadelphia, uh, Barb Donnelly, um, and Mike O'Brien. And, um, it's funny cause I knew, I knew a little bit about Mike when he was a, a cop at West Goshen and, right. um, and then um, and I processed in with Bill, uh, Bill, 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 Bill. He became the head of the New York field office. Sweeney, Bill Sweeney. Oh, Bill, Bill Sweeney, yeah. Yeah. Bill Sweeney. So, yeah, we ran we ran the fifth test together at uh, the Penn, Penn University of Pennsylvania track. And I, I tease him when I talk to him. I said, you're still running. You're so slow. He's still uh, not very, he's pretty, not very aerodynamic. So, um, <laughs> yeah, but you know, it, I knew I wasn't going back to Philly. The, the 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 odds of going back to Philadelphia were slim and none, and I I didn't want to go to New York. I was deathly afraid of New York, cost of living, traffic, the whole the whole thing. So, I had a sense that that Washington Field was going to be a big office that they would try and fill. So I put that number one, and then I put Baltimore number two, and then Philly number three, and then New York and Newark were like fifty five and fifty six. So I was kind of. <laughs> I, I think I was strategic and, and as fate would have it, there were five people that got selected to go to Washington field. I was one of them. Um, from there, you know, I assume the FBI and its infinite wisdom would take my police officer career, my criminal justice degree, my master's in criminal justice degree. And that's pretty much all I knew. And put me to work doing the cool stuff, you know, gangs, drugs, homicides, robberies, the whole, you know, or whatever, the criminal, the kick indoors, the reason we all get in the FBI. And um, I got a call halfway through Quantico from my new supervisor, and she called to introduce herself. And she said, hey, my name is Diane. I'm your new boss. Congratulations. You're coming to the Cuban counterintelligence squad. Hmm. And pre-9-11, national security training was one day. Maybe a day and a half. I mean, you learned about CI, CT, espionage, FISA, national security. All the all the national security stuff was was maybe a day, day and a half. And I asked her. I said, "What the hell is that?" <laughs> and she said, I, "I I can't tell you over the phone." And my heart, I could just feel my energy just 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 leave my body because you know what I enjoyed about being a cop. What helped me get through it was coming home that night um, or the next day, whenever, depending on the shift and talking to my wife and I wouldn't say names, but I would tell stories, right? It was a way of kind of releasing that, you know, we did this, we did this, we chased, you know, all the kind of, it was, a, it was almost therapeutic. And now I was going into a world where we can't even talk about what we do to our spouse. And that was, that was really really hard. Um, and I don't think, I don't think people generally, um, appreciate how difficult a lifestyle that is. You know, I, I, I don't know how your, your experiences were. And I, I know if you told stories about work, you, you left out like names, but at the same time, you know, like Cuban counterintelligence, you know, what did you do today? Stuff. <laughs> Where'd you go? places, you know, I could, I could talk about what I had for lunch, you know, that was pretty much it. And I remember distinctly with, with the Montez case, we had been working it for, for 10 months and it was by far the biggest case of my career. And the night before we made the arrest, I sat my, my wife, my ex-wife down at the time. And I said, tomorrow I'm going to make, uh, I'm going to be part of a, a major, major arrest. It's going to be on TV. Um, 
I just, we're going to arrest a woman for espionage. And that's all I could, that's all I probably told her too much, to be honest with you. And uh, she's like, okay, that's great. Um, Ethan's crying. Can you go get him? (laughs) He was two and a half weeks old. So um, that, that just was, I found it to be a very hard lifestyle. I agree. I agree with that. I mean, it, I get it, it too. to me. Uh, we did an investigation uh, on the Boeing Corporation. Uh, rested uh, over 80 people there. And um, uh, the whole time, the investigation lasted five years, and my daughter worked there. My best friend mm. was one of the top-level executives there. And wow. I would walk on campus, and I had a name tag, but don't, nobody ever saw me because we're doing things. We had cameras up. Yeah. You know, yep. with all the Chinooks and the Department of Defense, it was all those things I never mentioned to my wife or my daughter. And then when we came in to do the arrest, just like you, my daughter called me and said, Dad, the FBI's here. Do you know what's going on? And I said, yes, I do. <laughs> and I says, I'll tell you about it at home, but don't tell anybody your dad works for the FBI. Yeah. <laughs> because I didn't want anything to come back on her. So I get yeah. it. I get what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a part of the job that I don't know that people, uh, I mean, hopefully your listeners are, if they're, if they're applying, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it should, I hope it doesn't, you know, kind of cause them to have pause and not apply because the FBI needs good people to come in and, and carry that legacy on. But just to know up front, you know, it's, it can be a difficult lifestyle for, for families. And, uh, you tend to be very inclusive. You, you know, you may know a neighbor or two. They may know what you do. You see these different cars in front of your house, but it's, it's not the easiest of lifestyles. So there's kind of an irony here, uh, Pete, in that the case you're about to share with us was of a woman who had a job yeah. in Intel, and then she liked to talk, and she talked to the people who wanted to listen to what she had to say and make money. So. Uh, not everyone has the same philosophy as the vast, vast majority of us in the FBI. And uh, I know she was in a different uh, DIA, right? If I recall. Yeah, yeah the and defense. You can explain all these acronyms. So, yeah, walk us through this. You're in your office one day and a file gets put on your desk or you have a new case assigned to you. How does this all play out? So, we had the Bureau had been working. Um, we had what the FBI is allowing me to say is a lot of what we call unsub cases, unknown subjects. We knew that the Cubans had a multitude of, of illegal officers and agents and access agents. Uh, we knew a lot of tidbits about these people, but they were literally dozens and dozens and dozens of needles in dozens and dozens and dozens of haystacks. And, and it wasn't just one case on one person uh, who became identified as Montez. So we had tidbits. We worked with um, some folks at NSA. We worked at some with some folks at another agency that didn't allow me to say who they are. And we kind of had a hodgepodge team. And we were we were going through these cases, trying to make, you know, get some names with these people. And it was incredibly difficult. Late 2000, um, Outside of, you know, beyond the knowledge of the FBI, some of the tidbits were shared by an analyst at NSA with someone at the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency. And at the time, DIA had not been in the need to know circle. We, we, we didn't think that, you know, the DOD has 44 different components. There is 1.3 million uniformed personnel in the in the Department of Defense and, and over 800,000 civilians, not including contractors. It is a mammoth, mammoth organization. So NSA being part of DOD, we thought we kind of had DOD covered. And in fact, we, we, we really didn't. Um, she reaches out to someone that she had met at DIA, gives them some of the tidbits that at the time were I mean, top secret, compartmented, very, very sensitive. It's now been declassified because it's it's in the book. Um, and and that person said, "This sounds like DIA." And in addition, this sounds like it might be Anamantes. It could be other people. 
But from what I'm hearing, it does sound like it might, it's definitely us. So it, it opened the aperture to another agency that we weren't even looking at. We were looking at the CIA when, first, frankly. When you, when you mentioned some of these acronyms, Pete, I know what they mean. Jim knows yeah. what they mean. But I'm sure our listeners have no idea what DIA is or NSA or even DOD, yeah. DOJ. So if you just mention some of those things sure. talk, kind of gives them a heads up. NSA being the National Security Agency, they do signals intelligence for the intelligence community. Um, they're also nicknamed No Such Agency, which is kind of funny because they they don't want any publicity. Um, the DIA is the Defense Intelligence Agency, and there are 18 now agencies of the U.S. intelligence community, of which part of the FBI is is the National Security Branch of the FBI is in the intel is part of the intelligence community. But DIA is essentially. It's essentially the CIA, you know, for the Department of Defense. It collects military intelligence. It analyzes military intelligence, but its prime customer is the is the warfighters and the policymakers within the Department of Defense. Unlike the CIA, which its prime um, clients, customers is the president, vice president, National Security Council, all, and then the rest of the intelligence community. So, DIA is a very important part of the intelligence community. Um, but we weren't even looking at them. We, I don't know that we could spell DIA at the time. We were, they were not even on our radar because we were methodically working through um, one of the tidbits. It's interesting. One of the tidbits we knew. So the Cubans, on the Cuban side of things, they have um, Department M1 of the Cuban Intelligence Service is the United States. And Department M11 targets the White House, State Department, and Congress, what they call the policy, the political, and, and political with a small p, not, not D's and R's. M12 is what the Cubans refer to as the enemy services, which includes the FBI, 35,000 employees, the CIA, which, I mean, Wikipedia says 20,000. I don't know the true number. And then the, the Department of Defense, which is, like I said, it's, it, our, our suspect pool for, for this Agent S was two and a half million people, not including, and again, not including contractors. And, and that's, a, that's a huge pool to try and tackle and identify. Now, there were some things we knew, the high frequency messages. And by the way, here's, that's the shortwave radio that, that she used. Um, oh, cool. The high frequency messages were on were transmitted from Cuba to the United States on frequencies that you could hear from North Carolina to New England. So, in, and that's a big that's a big stretch of 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 country, right? If you're in California, you couldn't hear these frequencies. If you're in Guam, Hawaii, anything west of you know the Ohio Valley, you're not hearing this, so you you can't be a suspect. So we took that 2.5 million. And theoretically, could narrow that down to four to five hundred thousand, which is still <laughs> yeah. still a lot of people. So, yeah. this is kind of what get us going. And then, you know, DIA had a suspicion about her. Looked at a, a travel record because one of the other tidbits we knew was that this agent S had traveled to uh, Guantanamo Bay. Um, uh, on TDY, they went on temporary assignment. They weren't, it wasn't a covert mission. It was, you know, got permission from their boss to go to Guantanamo Bay. So there were records, travel records. And sure enough, one of the uh, the security guys at, at DIA, you know, went through the, the travel records and her name popped out um, as being one of the only people that had traveled to Guantanamo Bay in that period. And that guy had had an interview with Ana Montes about four years earlier. And there was a, there was a suspicion about her that, and Malcolm Gladwell writes about this in his book, Talking to Strangers. If you've read Talking to Strangers, he talks about this interaction that Scott Carmichael from DIA had with Ana Montes. And there was a, an, an observation by somebody at, you know, in that time frame, 96, but, you know, he interviews her. She provides reasonable explanations as to why she did what she did. And case was closed because there wasn't enough information to go on. But 
when he saw her name in the travel records, he had his oh shit moment. And and that's when that's when Pete, he, if I can just interject here, if she's with the DIA and traveling to a US military base, which happens to be in a certain corner of Cuba, yeah, and I've been there for six weeks interviewing some of the, the detainees back in the day. Um, that in of itself wouldn't raise flags, right? Because she's in a controlled environment. I was getting stopped all the time by the military police. You're taking a picture of a nice sunset and they pull up, no, no, no cameras. And they almost yes. maybe delete it right there if possible. So did it ever come out in the investigation? I don't want to get too ahead of it, uh, ahead of us here, but did she, was she actually meeting with anyone at the fence or something while she was in Gitmo? I don't think when she went to Gitmo, no, she did travel to when the, when Pope John Paul II traveled to Cuba and met with Fidel, I want to say 1998, she did go to Havana, um, so not to Guantanamo Bay, went to the actual uh, U.S. interest section and, and went on another TDY to support uh, the Pope's visit to, to Cuba. And then she did meet with the Cubans every night in a safe house and talked about what she learned that day. So that trip was okay. a quasi business trip, quasi operational trip. The Gitmo trip, I think, was just straight up government, our government business, not not theirs. And how did gotcha. you find out about that in 98? Did you have people on her when she's down there in Havana? Or no, no, this 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 information would have come to us. Um, I think we probably had identified the trip because it, she would have, tra you know, filed travel records and it was official. Right. Um, but that when we talked to her post arrest, post conviction as part of the plea agreement, that's when we learned that the uh, she would meet with the Cubans every night, you know, during the post visit. Interesting. Now, from what I understand, after reading your book, which, by the way, was fantastic. And at the end of our show, we want to tell all our listeners how to get a copy of that book. And maybe there's some way that they can send it to you and you can sign it for me, Pete. But I'll leave that up to you. But most, from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, because this is your area of expertise, but most of the people, Ames, Hansen, and some of the other spies, were always passing documents. Mm -hmm. But she didn't do that, did she? She did no, something. And, yeah, and to your point, most of the other spies were men. Yes. Her gender, her gender, you know, it's funny. I did an interview recently, recorded an interview that for, for something that I can't, I can't kind of, I can't tell y'all right now, but it's going to be really cool when it airs. It's going to be really cool. And um, I sat with the correspondent and I was, I asked her, I said, um, and, and phenomenal correspondent. I said, if Anna was a man, are we sitting down talking? She goes, absolutely not. It's not, it's, it's not, it's an interesting case, but it's not to this level interesting. Her gender is the reason why we're talking about this case. There are so few women that the FBI or any, anyone in modern times. Now, World War II, there were a lot of women who were spying in the Civil War and all those, you know, the kind of the, the, the that, that generation, but modern times, and, and, and it's an interesting, like, why? Like why why do are women better at not getting caught? <laughs> are are women better at saying this is stupid? I'm going to get caught. Why would I do this? Are they, you know, are there too many you know dual? They have they have careers, but they have you know they're racing kids to here and there. I don't know. I mean, but her gender is significant. I think in terms of the historical aspect. Uh, but you're right. The other guys, um, you know, printed documents or took pictures of documents. And, and the majority of her methodology was to memorize. You know, every day she went to work, she, she memorized the three most important things she thought the Cubans needed to know. And then she would write them up or type them up and then, and then get that to uh, her illegal officer um, in broad daylight, essentially. There's a play in a movie called The 39 Steps, and that's uh, there's some spy elements to it. And it was like just a person who was a professional memorizer, so to speak, and that kind of put the whole case together there. So here she's using techniques, just using her brain, not making photocopies or taking little pictures. Amazing. Which, which to me, you know, when I think of that, 
you know, if I'm on the other end and I'm listening to this, I'm, my question is, how the hell did this person come on your radar? I mean, she's not taking anything out. She's not leaving with anything. There's no pictures. There's no exchange. Although there is some document transference, but it's just on her computer at home, which I guess could be something. But how does she come on your radar? Well, again, it's this information that the intelligence that we had that that there was a problem among many problems and and the right person heard the right tidbit and and then and then start to think, well, this is DIA, and if it's DIA, it might be might be Anna. and let's let's check this other tidbit, see who traveled and then her name her name really popped up. And I think it was the other the other interaction that she had um, in nineteen ninety six with DIA security. She, her, you know, the Queen of Cuba is um, that was kind of her nickname, and and you know, not everyone. Some some people were like, yeah, she's the Queen of Cuba. It was a little derisive, and other people were like, well, she's probably going to go to this meeting because she's the Queen of Cuba. Like, you know, it was an official, unofficial nickname, but this reputation that she built of being the go-to person, you know, I think insulated her from concerns and security awareness and, and any, any little, you know, side eyes at a meeting or any kind of, you know, I think it, I think her reputation and her accomplishments really helped to put a force field around her from a security perspective, because I think people were like, you know, her boss, the day she was arrested, he was stunned. And he's like, she's like literally my best analyst, like far and away. The Cubans, the Cubans felt the same way about her, apparently. They, they absolutely felt the same way about her. Yep. Yep. I, I, I got to say that this is probably other, you know, the fact that she's female, but her methods were so unorthodox Yep. The memorization. Many of these others and individuals, they did it out of greed. They did it for money. Yeah. What was her reason for doing it? It wasn't money. So there's a standard mice uh, phrase, money, ideology, coercion, and ego. And I think it's dated um, because if you don't do it for money and you weren't blackmailed, then it's ideology. And, and you know, I think it's a little intellectually lazy. I think she was... I don't think she would say, I believe in the Cubans. Like, I believe in how they run their government, how they, you know, what they're doing to their people. I, she's not, would not call her pro-Cuban. I would call her, I, I refer to her as being anti-American. Um, I think she hates our country and, and, and really hates the, uh, in her words, the interventionalist aspect of what we've done El Salvador, Nicaragua, you know, the embargo against Cuba, you know, the fact that Puerto Rico is a territory with non-voting rights in the United States. Her attitude is how dare the United States dictate how another country should run itself. So that to me is more anti-American than pro-Cuba. Um, and, then, and then you go to what she was going to do against what we were going into Afghanistan and, and what she told us about what her plan was. I mean, that's completely un-American. You know, I don't care who you voted for. I don't care, you know, if, if you hate our country or not. But, but you know, men and women going to harm's way to, to bring justice to what happened on 9-11. I mean, I, I, there's, no, there's no debate over that. <laughs> you know, if you're not on Team America in that moment, then, then you're just anti-American as far as I'm concerned. But but she didn't grow up in an anti-American environment. No. Her father was a high-ranking military member. I think her sister was an FBI translator. And I mean, uh, unless they were, you know, um, propagandizing against the U.S. when she was a, a child or something. So she must have picked this up somewhere on her own. I would guess maybe at a university somewhere. That's still happening today. And uh, somehow parlayed it into spying against her country mom and dad mr and mrs montez you know for their flaws and mr montez had a lot of flaws um i i was told by her siblings that they mom and dad raised them very morally 
um, you know, they had political views and, and they had views that they, they sometimes would talk about things, but nothing, nothing was extreme in any, in any direction. Um, but you're right because, you know, Anna's brother Tito went to work for the FBI. He was an agent, dedicated his career to chasing domestic terrorists around. He, he was an SOG, uh, and uh, the acronym, help me out here. The SOG, surveillance special operations group. Right. So agents, agents do surveillance with guns against really bad people, you know, gangbangers and, and domestic terrorists, people who might shoot back. Whereas we have specialists who do surveillance on counterintelligence cases. We're not armed. They're called the G's. Tito dedicated his whole life to, you know, being an armed agent, following domestic terrorists and bank robbers and bad people around, you know, China and, and served honorably, retired honorably. And, and, and Lucy, her sister was a translator in our Miami office and, and did a phenomenal job, all raised by the same parents and all vehemently opposed to uh, and disgusted, frankly, with what she did. Um, you know, so that's that's very it's been a very difficult 22 years for her mother, um, you know, as a as a mom. Like, how do you how do you how do you support your daughter who you always love, but you just you kind of hate the sin, but love the sinner? I mean, that's the only analogy that I can think, having never been in that situation. Um, very good family. And unfortunately, you know, she was. She just kind of cut against the grain. Pete, was there a, a plan in place with the at least the sister and the brother that when the arrest was going down, someone in their individual offices were notified and pulled them in a room somewhere and said, just so you're not reading this on the internet or watching on TV? I hope the Bureau did that for them. They did. I mean, we we obviously, I can't remember if we had cases, cases against them, to be honest with you. Um, if we did, they would have been in Miami and Atlanta where Tito and Lucy were working. I mean, regardless, the original intelligence that we had that, that started this off and, and then combined with our investigation, it, it showed that the, the siblings had no knowledge of this whatsoever. So we had no suspicion and we were not just protecting them because they were, you know, brothers and sisters in the FBI. I, my, my handcuffs were, were fresh and ready to go. And I wouldn't have had any problem arresting an FBI translator if, but trust me, this was, this was a, this was a, a lone wolf, isolated and and her sister has actually told me probably as recently as six months ago that you know i really appreciate you and you and steve uh my partner arresting her because it would have broke my heart if i found out and would have had to have turned her in and that's that's the kind of mm. anguish that that the families had to go through but yeah we had we had um um del spry actually in Atlanta, Dell was the case agent on the Aldrich Ames case, and he was the supervisor down in Atlanta. He called in uh, Tito and Tito's wife at the time. They're now divorced. But Tito's wife was an was an, retired as an FBI agent. So Anna's sister-in-law was an FBI agent. And he sat them down and said, you know, your sister, Tito, your sister's been arrested for espionage. And uh, that was that was heartbreaking for Tito. He he really struggled for a long time trying Absolutely. to get his get it. and and Lucy too. Lucy and Joni, the entire family was just in shock. Pete, tell us about Anna the person. What was she like? What was uh was she seeing someone seriously? Was she was she uh was she dating? Um what was she what kind of person was she? Um, she is highly intelligent. She's a very smart woman. Um, very well educated, um, worldly in the sense of, of, you know, having this, a worldview, um, can have empathy, but it depends on who's, who's the, who's the recipient, who she believes is the rightful recipient of that empathy. Um, interpersonally, she's pretty cold, not a warm person, um, by, by all accounts, she was very good at compartmenting, you know, work friends, work people she worked with never, she never went to happy hours. 
right? Never socialize with work people out of work because she might, what if she runs in, what if they get to know her better and, and get to know her views? And so she was very guarded. Um, not a pleasant person. She could be very intellectually arrogant to coworkers, but she was oftentimes right, you know, which I think helped with that arrogance, if you will. And then finally, she was dating the time of our investigation. She was dating um, a guy named Roger who worked for the Department of Defense. He was um, an analyst on Cuba. They were actually um, peers, but he was living in Miami and the relationship was maturing. And uh, she was she was in love and she thought they were going to get married and, and um, was at a point in her relationship and in her life in general, where she was going to tell the Cubans, I, I can't do this anymore. I have to see, I'm exhausted. I'm, you know, it's just, I've helped you guys. It's been great, but I need to, I need to live my life because I, she hated working at DIA. She hated her job um, because she knew she was surrounded by true believers who believed in the mission of protecting the United States. When you, uh, when you first interviewed her, was it at the arrest or was it prior to? Did you have a chance to meet her prior to the arrest? And what was your impression? Maybe you've already given that impression to us. But let's put it this way. When you arrested her, yeah, what was her reaction? So I met her um, maybe five minutes before, just prior, just prior to her arrest. Um, we, 10 days after 9-11, um, the director of the DIA said, this is it enough. Like you either arrest her or I'm going to fire her. And it helped, helped get the department of justice, the bigger justice department to let us talk to prosecutors. And, and they, they were convinced that we had enough to arrest her. So we had an arrest warrant in our back pocket. She was called down to the inspector general's office at DIA under the pretext of, I have to talk to the IG about some, it was a kind of a Mickey Mouse little issue, um, but she got you know called down and, and at 10 o'clock in the morning, she walked into a conference room and met two FBI agents, you know, Steve McCoy and myself. And uh, we introduced ourselves and frankly, we thought she was going to collapse. Um, I think maybe we were, I, I can't speak for Steve, but but I thought, Again, her gender. I probably thought that you know this is a woman, and we're gonna we're gonna tell her she's under arrest for espionage, and basically your life's over, and she's just gonna like faint. And and truth be told, not only did she not faint, but I do think she could have carried one of us out on her back. Um, that's how <laughs> stoic she was, and I wouldn't say she was proud because th th she definitely was not proud, but. You know, here's the thing I've thought about in, in the course of writing the book. We had known her name for 10 months. We had planned for this day for 10 months and worked towards this day, but for 10 months. She had planned for this day for 17 years. She hoped it never came, but years before we ever knew the name Anamanta, she and I think she was planning one day to maybe, hopefully not, but meet the FBI on our terms and not hers. So I think when she we introduced ourselves and said, hey, we're special agents of the FBI from the Washington field office. We work Cuban counterintelligence. Please sit down. You know, the, the game plan of shut up, comport, compose yourself. This is it. I think she pulled that out and, and ex she executed it brilliantly because she showed no emotion. She had a little physiological reaction that I saw um, at key moments, but nothing, nothing that, you know, it was, it's a moment I'll never forget. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's one of those, those, you know, lifetime memories, if you will. So if you had to say, and I don't want to give away too much in your book, but how long did her career span with Cuba? 17 years. You know, she started, she started in September of 1985. She's arrested in September of 2001. 
just shy of her 17th anniversary. And from day one, she was spying for Cuba. She went to DIA only for the purpose of spying for Cuba. So, you know, day one, she was fully recruited. So, um, you know, the system, you know, didn't, didn't prevent her from, from not getting into, you know, DIA, getting a clearance, you know, getting access and, and, you know, eventually working her way up to be the queen of Cuba. Pete, was there any strategy to um, considering uh, flipping her and have her be a double agent? No, because, um, you know, the risk... When I hear better now, I think it wouldn't have worked, but just early on. Yeah, the the fear is um, fleeing the country. Sure. You know, like Edward Lee Howard, who was a uh, Russian-American who was accused of or under suspicion for spying for Russia, you know, he, he... he literally was being tailed by the FBI surveillance and and escaped and died died decades later in Russia. So that's always the model of yeah, if you flip them, you never really control them. They could always flee. And, and in her house, we found a, a getaway bag. She had uh, four crisp one hundred dollar bills and maps of cities around the world. So she she could have she could have left pretty not easy not while she was under surveillance and. She wasn't leaving the United States, um, but she had means and, and and certainly motive because, you know, espionage can be punishable by death. So why stick around if you know you're under investigation? And how old was she at the time of the arrest? Uh, 45. 45. Is she still incarcerated, Pete? Yeah, unfortunately not. Um, she got out. Uh, so she, she agreed we agreed, the government and her agreed to a 25-year prison sentence. Um, you know, there's, there's, uh, sentencing is, is hard. It's, it's, there's no magic formula in these cases. You look at, you look at precedent, you know, you look at, okay, Ames, Ames and Hanson, you know, pled guilty, they, but they had death penalty counts. So it was either life or death. That's your choice. Um, and they chose life. So their plea was for life. The, the best we could get at trial was a life sentence. So, you know, being being the defendant, you're not going to say, I'm 45 years old. Okay, a life sentence for me is 40 years, maybe 45 years. So it's got to be better, better, a better deal than 40 years. Um, and we came up with the number 25. Now, and in, in, if I knew, I think if we knew then what we know now, based on what she told us and could use that, I think 25, I think she's, what I've said is, I think she, I respect the plea. I was a part of the plea. And I think she should feel very lucky to be free. Have you had the chance to speak to her since she's been out? No. Uh, I asked a question indirectly, but I don't know if it was uh known that it came from me, but no, I've not talked to her since 2005. Um, would you like she to, knows, you she like knows to, about would you the like book. to speak with her? What's that? Would you like to speak? Would you like to speak with her? Pete, before you answer that, just so you know, Ray is now best friends with the bank robber. He locked up uh, <laughs> about 15 years ago. They socialized. They, you had a coming out party or something with him, right, Ray? <laughs> Not sure about the coming out party, but uh, <laughs> I haven't seen him. What are you thinking of? I have no idea. When he came out of prison, right? That's what I'm thinking. Yes. Right. There and you go. Was, it, was, it was 20, 22 years, 23 years ago now. So it's been 23 years. In 2001, we locked him up. Carl Gugasian, by the way, the subject of 30 years on the run. That's Ray's book, as, Pete knows, as we know. Pete knows about it. But... I mean, Pete, if you had the opportunity or presented itself, would you be interested in speaking to her? Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't think... I, I don't think it would go well. Um, I definitely was very black and white, right and wrong back then. And I think that my, my paradigm bled through I, I don't think I did a very good job of, of, of 
you know, playing the stone poker face and just asking the questions. I think, I think for whatever reason, we, she just connected with my partner much better than, than I connected with her. And he was older. He was probably 20 years older. So they were closer in age. I mean, he could, he could tell you the difference between a Sandinista and a Contra. And I didn't give a shit, you know, it didn't matter to me, frankly. So I think she looked down on me academically and intellectually and, and I, because I was a cop, you know, I don't think she thought very highly of me. And, and I, don't, I don't know how that conversation would go. I, the one question I would want to ask her is, you know, today in 2023, having spent 17 years and 22 years, so 39 years of your 67 years on this planet, honestly, was it worth it? Like all that time living a life in either freedom or in jail, incarcerated, was it worth it? Do you think you really helped the Cubans and, and hurt the United States? And was it really worth it? And I think, you know, her answer would be BS. I think she would say absolutely, because I think she has to tell herself or else how do you, how do you justify that you wasted 39 years of your life, you know, making a mistake? I think she has to die on that sword, but It'd be nice to know whether she, you know, truly thinks it was worth it or not. And but I think yeah, that's a, that's a great good question. question. I don't, I don't, I don't have any interest in talking to her. Would will we ever? I don't know. Maybe, but um, probably not. I just, I especially. I mean, I think the book. I tried to, I tried to be um, with the book. I tried to not be judgmental. I tried to be. I didn't want my opinions to come through. And maybe there were times when they, I just, I couldn't hold back, but um, you know, I, I, I tried to be as even keel as I could and let the reader come to their own conclusion. I mean, obviously I have a perspective. I mean, I, I came from, I'm from law enforcement. What she did was legally wrong and criminal. And, you know, but there's a lot of people out there that think what she, that she's a hero. And that's sure. crazy. It's, you know, Edward Snowden has 5 million Twitter followers and there, and there many, many of them, most of them are fans. So she's got a fan club. And I think that that's, um, you know, for our current government and folks in the FBI and working in the intelligence community, that should be a little scary. Pete, you know, the funny thing about it is serial killers have fan clubs. So, so when you think about it, I mean, uh, it's a lot of this is beyond belief uh, yeah. in some of these things. Some of the worst serial killers in America, you have people that call them, people that not call them, but send them letters that communicate with them and want to come and see them and, and get they married. want to marry them. Marry them. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Pete, Pete, just did she, did she have any role models or idols? I'm always familiar with the World War One female spy, Matahari, who was spying for the Germans. She was eventually executed when she was caught. But I think she used not only memorization, but she used sex to actually get secrets out of yeah. people, too. Did you actually go through any of her books or libraries? Certainly her searching on the Internet, anything to do with other spies or even female spies? No, not to my recollection. Not to my recollection. Okay. There, was no, there was no model, no, um, uh, no inspiration from, um, you know, her inspiration was to really try and help help Cuba and help Nicaragua against the United States. That was her, her okay. main driving force. Well, I want to kind of wrap this up as we all have a place to be tonight. Um, any final thoughts? Yeah, I see that hat back there, Pete. I agree with you. Any final thoughts that you want to share with our audience, Pete? And how do we get the book? Well, so Amazon, is, uh, it's available on Amazon. The book will be out on November 14th. Um, Barnes and Nobles, anywhere you buy books, you can order it. Uh, there's an audio version that's, that was narrated by uh, an actor named George Newburn, who um, I had never heard of his name before, but he was Charlie in the series Scandal, um, oh, yeah. which I am now watching. And George is a really great guy, had a nice conversation. So a real actor, not some you know wannabe rock star narrating the book. <laughs> um, yeah, Barnes and Nobles or or Amazon, um, Queen of Cuba, November fourteenth. 
We have an event coming up at the Spy Museum on December 6th. That's going to be great if people are in the D.C. area, you know, go go to the Spy Museum. Their website will have some information. And um, I'm just excited. I'm really, you know, I'm proud of it. Um, you know, I, 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 I hope that my version of the story um, resonates with with the reader and goes beyond, you know, just folks in the Beltway. You know, I, I want people you know, the, 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 the middle, middle class family in Iowa that reads, I want them to read or listen to the book and learn about, and, and put the FBI, it puts the FBI in a different light. I mean, the FBI has lately, you know, really, as you, you both know, been crucified and, and, you know, mistakes happen, things happen, but like, this is, this is, and mistakes happened in the Montez case. We made mistakes and we're just good people trying to, you know, raise families, keep marriages together. And, and oh, by the way, we're following spies and bank robbers and all sorts of bad people while we're, you know, trying to live normal lives. And it's, it's tough. So hopefully I've humanized an FBI agent for, for the reader and they maybe look at them a little differently. But that's one of my hopes. Any final thoughts, Jim? No, just uh, this sounds uh, like a great book. I've read some summaries of it. I can't wait to actually get my hands on it itself. And uh, Pete, we never met before, but uh, your, uh, your 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 casework speaks for itself. And I like the, the certainly all three of us have the Philadelphia roots in common and and law enforcement even before the bureau. So uh, so again, thanks for being our uh, guest on Cold Red. Uh, should I take us out, Red? Well, let me just give me my final thought, Pete. I want to thank you for joining us and thank shedding you, light on your remarkable career in this remarkable case. Make sure everybody you check out his new book. The Queen of Cuba, available for sale on November 14th. Jim, take us home. Again, thanks, Pete. Thanks, Ray. Uh, everyone, thanks for signing in here, listening to us or watching us. Please check out the coldredpodcast.com. Subscribe to us. And beyond everything else, you take care of yourself and keep yourself very much aware of your surroundings. It may just save your life. And see everyone next time on Cold Red.